Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald podcast series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. In this episode, we will be discussing architecture and urban design of the post-COVID-19 city. In the last several months, millions of people around the world have had to quarantine, self-isolate, and social distance. Our private lives, public lives, our family lives, and our work lives have drastically shifted into what many call the new normal. While much of our attention has been given to medical experts and following government guidelines, architecture and urban design play a key, if not overlooked, role in our lives as we face the pandemic and look beyond. Here to discuss this is Ashraf Salama. I'm Ashraf Salama. I'm a professor of architecture at the University of Strathclyde, Glasgow, UK. Ashraf has published over 170 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and authored and co-edited 14 books. From the start of the global pandemic, Ashraf immediately began thinking about the role of architecture and urban design in the face of COVID-19 and began looking ahead to the post-pandemic world. In mid-April 2020, Ashraf published an open peer-reviewed opinion article on Emerald Open Research and the Sustainable Cities Gateway, titled, Coronavirus Questions That Will Not Go Away, Interrogating Urban and Socio-Spatial Implications of COVID-19 Measures. Thank you for joining me today, Ashraf. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, In your work, you explain that architecture and urban design must plan for a post-pandemic life. Um, What are some of the questions and issues that you think we need to be discussing? I think there is uh, a number of uh, substantial questions that one could raise, but I would focus on, you know, key four questions that are more relevant to architecture and built environment uh, related fields or disciplines. Um, The first question that comes to mind is about the nature of transformation. So what is the nature of transformations post-pandemic and how urban factors and urban qualities will be impacted by these transformations? And whether COVID-19 alter our understanding of urban space and urban life dialectics, how are we going to operate within the urban environments in the future? Whether it's going to generate new environments that accommodate new living and working patterns. And also there is an important question about nature and would engagement with nature be favored over engagement with other people or with the built environment? So I would say these are the most relevant questions in the context of uh, social distancing measures, uh, perception of sanitation and cleanliness, public health issues, restrictions to uh, urban mobility. So these are the key questions. Right. So we've all had to adjust to these new government guidelines on how we interact in public. Do you see these having a long-term effect on on how we interact in spatial environments in public with strangers, for example? I think it will have definitely uh, an impact uh, long-term in terms of if these pandemics become part of the collective psyche of people, uh, or of a group of people or within a city. And if these pandemics also, many people are talking about, it's, it's going to be annual events. 
so like influenza or, or other types of diseases that are seasonal. So if they become annual events, some part of the collective psyche, then they will have impact on how people engage with these environments and how governments introduce measures that could be uh, flexible and changing throughout the year based on safe periods and risky periods. So are we having to rethink how grocery stores might be laid out or how public spaces might be laid out or workspaces laid out because of the pandemic? Uh, There will be impact on this. And currently we can see it in terms of the distancing measures required and how people uh, stand in line for payment and at tellers and all these aspects. But uh, as I say, these could be flexible and changing because now, for example, we see now in England, uh, it says, okay, it could be one meter instead of two. So this will continue to be dynamic, these aspects. There will be impact on office spaces, office environments, living environments also, in addition to shopping places and uh, grocery stores. Right. You know, so a lot of us have gotten used to working at home if people are able to work remotely, but a lot of people can't work remotely. They have to work in public. Is this changing a little bit how architects and urban planners are thinking about social environments? Currently, uh, of course, there are research schools and there are discussions about these issues. If people have to work from home, then this requires like new standards, whether new standards for uh, retrofitting or for adaptations and uh, appropriation of the current spaces or of the existing environments. So if you, for example, if an insurance company now must work in their workplace still, then this would require really reallocating furniture, uh, re-engaging with smaller groups, uh, retrofitting the entire spatial environments to accommodate these patterns. If you're designing new environments, then there is a lot of, I would say, research required to understand how people behave uh, within these uh, limitations and restrictions. Right. So in the last few months, we've been calling this the sort of new normal, but you refer to it that it could become the actual normal. Uh, From your point of view, what are the negative consequences of this new actual normal? And are there any positive consequences of it? This is a very, very, thank you very much for the question. It's really a very important question. And I, I, uh, maybe I would expand here a little bit in terms of the new or actual normal has been predicted. We have been talking about it and many visionaries have been talking about it since 80s, 90s and early 2000s. And we can look at the work of many uh, social scientists and including architects and theorists talking about, for example, the how the global city is seen as a process, not necessarily a physical entity. There have been discussions about um, etopia, electronic-topia, and how strategies for the creation of cities on how they're going to be sustainable, but also how they will accommodate the domination of the digital over the physical. We, we can see a lot of that and predictions about that. So the negative part of it, speaking of negatives and positives, the key negative, I would say, is that reshaping human interactions. So what we were used to have might end up totally changed. So in in terms of human relationships and the, the sense of physicality, the sense of touch, the sense of engagement, all these 
uh, will change and uh, will require or will end up with new forms of engagement at a physical level. But I would conceive it also from a positive perspective that the current condition could be seen as an invitation to think beyond the stable state or the stable normal. This idea has been generated also in the 70s by many theorists, including Donald Schoen. Donald Schoen has written a book in 1972 called Beyond the Stable State, in which he argues that we live in a time of loss of the stable state, which is a representation of where we are now at the moment a period in which stable views of occupations, interactions, religions, organizations, and value systems have been eroded. And this tells us a lot that we need to learn from the current condition and we need to adopt a learning system that is subject to continuous transformation and continuous change. We have to be able to adapt really in the future rather than have a stable view or a stable normal that we operate within. And this applies to organizations, governments, and individuals and communities. It applies at all levels. Well, it seems that the pandemic has really accelerated this sort of vision set out earlier on by earlier theorists. What do you think the impact is of the pandemic itself on this evolution that had already been envisioned? Currently, we operate with what many people say, dynamic conservatism, which is basically fighting to stay the same. So the impact is that organizations and individuals also will have a better capacity and abilities to adapt and appropriate and react quickly. But also in the mindset of many organizations, there will be this condition of continuous transformation and continuous change. How this is influenced by or influencing the designing of cities and designing of spaces is a different issue, but a different issue in the sense that it's going to have to be flexibility embedded in everything architects and planners do so that the notion of adaptation, the idea of appropriation are possible in contingent and dynamic situations. Right. So travel and transportation is one example of that. And travel and transportation is a key part of urban planning. And that has been affected in in big cities, people who use, you know, commute to work and things like that, how that's virtually halted in in a lot of big cities or changed quite a bit. Do you see long-term effects in the way that urban planners look at travel and transportation because of the pandemic? I can see different modes of transportation will be encouraged. Still, we're going to rely on public transportation, no doubt. But I would say there will be more incentives for cycle to work, encouraging walking, encouraging minimization of big public gatherings within transportation systems or within transportation stations and buses and all this. But at the same time, it has already impacted the global networks. So when you see the amount of flights, some cities are relying on the travel routes and they call them airport societies, where many people um, passing through Dubai, passing through Singapore, uh, passing through other cities. Uh, and, and the city economy is based on this idea of while going from Europe to Australia, you stop by Singapore two, three nights. The economy of the city is based on this. 
So basically, the travel routes and travel connections, the reduction of these have impacted these cities already and the economy of these cities already. So are we in a state of sort of wait and see to see if this yeah. passes in the next year? Yeah, there is no doubt. It's, it's still uh, under, under uh, I would say, uh, as you say, wait and see. And we, we, we need to see also the impact because one view says actually airports and seaports can be seen, for example, as source of disease because this is the first point of contact of travelers. So how do you control that? Basically, airport areas might end up having different uh, limitations and different restrictions and even different densities and planning rules than other parts of the city. If it's proven that airports are the source of virus spread, for example. There's been discussion about retrofitting existing buildings to adjust to the pandemic. Uh, Is there something you can say to us about that? Yes, uh, actually... uh, It's really very important uh, moving forward that planners, architects need to start by developing standards in terms of how retrofitting is not going to take place at the level of making buildings in a better shape in terms of material and in terms of construction, but also it will need to look at the spaces within these buildings and how these spaces can accommodate new work styles and life styles, basically, how to integrate in a living space, how to integrate a workspace within a living space. And of course, this is based on the type of users. Again, uh, when we talk about users, there are different types. And regardless of their cultural background or age group or these dynamics, it's really very important to consider the nature of work they do. So some people call this life modes and based on work. Uh, And life modes based on work, uh, the wage earner would be very different from a career-oriented person and would be very different from uh, a self-employed person. The meaning of the home environment will be very different to these people. These different people who have different work interests For example, the career-oriented person basically will use the home as part of work environment. So the home environment and the work environment are really interacting heavily. The wage earner, the home environment for a wage earner is very different. So you go to work, come back from work, so the home environment becomes an entertainment place or or, um, dedicated for a time or a spare time you spend with the family, watch TV and all this. In the process of retrofitting, all these aspects should be considered, in in my view, but especially the, the idea of emerging working and living patterns and how this interfere with family responsibilities and family practices within the home environment. I I'm, I don't know if there are standards being generated at the moment, but I know that there are research proposals to generate new standards are being developed. Right. So what we've been talking about so far are highly organized environments like airports or transportation, work environments and things like that. But what about overlooked areas such as slums, like the slums of Rio de Janeiro or places like that? How much of a role can architects and urban planners really play here? And how does the pandemic affect these types of communities differently than highly planned environments? 
it's a, this is a very, very important question, given that uh, it's really very interesting to see that most of the current discussions, especially in the beginning of the uh, pandemic, during, uh, let's say, end of March, April, until mid-May, no one was talking about informal settlements in Rio de Janeiro or in India until very recently. Toward the end of May, uh, we started to see some reports on Cairo, Delhi, Mumbai, and the squatter settlements within these cities. I would say that definitely architects have a role to play if they have sufficient information, because there is severe lack of information about the virus spread in these settlements. And there are no records of the numbers of infected populations and number of death cases and mortality rates and all these aspects. But overall, they can plan to hopefully or listen eradicate or lessen the consequences of the virus spread, introduce new strategies, new services, uh, new awareness campaigns as, as, as part of or in collaboration with social scientists, establish new lenses through which they can really focus on health issues as it relates to architecture and urban environments. Because health is not considered in these environments and in many other environments, even in planned environments, it's not seen as a critical factor in determining or understanding urban qualities. Health is always in, in, in the backseat. Right. So when we're looking at something like the slums of Rio de Janeiro, are architects part of the conversation in terms of planning these environments? Because it doesn't seem that they actually really are planned environments per se, the way that urban centers are. They are, they are architects Formally, they are not part of the discussion in these because also these environments are, are very difficult to intervene in. But in most cases, you can find NGOs working with architects, some social uh, services uh, associations working with architects in trying to introduce services or to improve school environments, for example, or public spaces or sanitation services, but not an at an official level. So even uh, informal settlements involve informal efforts also to intervene in, not official efforts in most cases. In other cases where governments intervene, they always intervene by demolition, not capitalizing on what people have done throughout the years in terms of building for themselves. And uh, so improvement versus demolition uh, is a challenge that architects and planners would need to continue to work with. Right. So seasonal migration, for example, that, that's an example of something that may not be so highly planned. Seasonal migration, of course, it's not planned for, but the pandemic can be seen as uh, encouraging people or those who can afford to leave crowded areas within the city or areas characterized by very high density within the city and move into the periphery of the city or even rural areas. But this will also create issues, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the heart of many cities, many cities in, in North America and in Europe were struggling really with crime rates and with anonymity and issues with city centers after working hours. After five o'clock, the entire city center is deserted. So now if many people leave these places and move whether companies or for residential leave outside the city, move to outside the city, they will end up really struggling again with city centers. So there has to be some form of a balance. 
in terms of planning for this or allowing this to happen or creating incentives for people to stay in highly dense areas, assuming that there will be very good density management in case of uh, a virus spread. Right. So it seems that there are a lot of elements that go into these types of discussions around these spaces. And in your research, you take a transdisciplinary approach and you think that architects and urban planners need to look at this from a transdisciplinary point of view. Can you describe this and specifically what it means to architects and people such as yourself? Transdisciplinarity, of course, it's a, it's an ideal condition that academics have been calling for since maybe 10, 15 years. And um, in terms of architecture, there is a number of problems and a number of issues that architects need to deal with. And these issues are really complex and the architects cannot solve on their own. Uh, if we're talking, as you mentioned, about travel, for example, travel impact of travel on urban planning, you really need to uh, collaborate with uh, transportation engineers, with urban geographers, with human geographers, and architects and planners. If we're talking about the impact of social distancing measures on people's perception of engagement with public spaces and public environments, this requires collaboration with environmental psychologists, disaster psychologists, with architects and planners. So creating the mechanisms for for this to happen start from higher education institutions. So the way we apply this or we try to apply this, whether at the level of transdisciplinary knowledge, the knowledge that is delivered to future generations or to university students are basically stemming from different disciplines. That's one level. But if we're talking about transdisciplinary action, where problems are resolved based on expertise of a number of people. This still, I would say, immature is, is not happening at a mature level or at a, at a clearly defined level. I see that you're still busy giving talks and speaking with experts in architecture and urban design. What have you learned from the conversations that you've been having over the last few weeks? We've been having lots of discussions about how we really try to understand people's movement in public spaces whether health is going to be a key parameter in understanding urban qualities and whether there will be um, a rise for biophilic design. And biophilic design is simply engaging with nature, engaging with nature at different levels and how nature could impact health and well-being of people and building users and city users. Uh, And I think there will be a rise to some of these trends that are already established, but they they will grow more. Knowing that when we talk, for example, about nature, there there are two versions of nature. There is a managed version of nature where you bring nature to the city, or there is an actual nature, an actual version of nature where you go and build within nature. So that kind of balance is also important and uh, bringing as much as possible, especially in contexts where this is relevant, as much as possible natural elements to public spaces, creating views to buildings, trying to uh, understand the impact of nature on children, for example, on school environments, on people productivity in workplaces, and so on and so forth. 
Well, as an educator, you have an impact on the new generation of architects that are going out into the world and urban planners. I saw that in a blog post about a recent symposium that you participated in, you had some really interesting and powerful words about architectural education students. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read a little bit of what you'd written and then get your response to that. Please. You wrote, architectural education needs to qualify students to intervene in the rapidly changing systems and processes of human settlements and have the capacity to reconnect people in place in a dynamic synergy that leads to positive impacts on human well-being. The architect needs to be an agent of social and spatial evolution towards a better ecological harmony in its broadest sense. So what does this statement mean to you in the context of the post-COVID-19 city? It it means a lot. Uh, uh, Number one, at the level of engaging with students, uh, educators and students have a responsibility to really start to think about people more than physical artifacts and that relationship between people and environments, the built and the human. In some schools of architecture worldwide, still there is a focus, heavy focus, on how it looks, not how it works. We're not saying we we want to ignore how it looks. Of course, uh, how it looks has been a characteristic of the work of architects, but at the same time, how it works is really critical. Uh, How architects can, can support people activities, enhance their their well-being uh, through design. This requires lots of studies and how to integrate really research into design. Th- th- these are important parameters that we try to adopt in our school. And I think there are many schools are focusing on, on these issues, the dialectics between people and environments. As a teacher, what are some of the most valuable lessons or values you seek to pass on to your students? You know, uh, uh, in in general, uh, the key lesson uh, is, is stems from this idea of people engagement with the environment, how we see environment influences people behavior, how the environment can be designed based on cultural attitudes, how design can support different types of populations, how design should not see the idea of the average user. Sometimes when we talk about users, we say the user, and the user could be anyone. And there is no average user. Users are different uh, in terms of age group, in terms of cultural backgrounds, in terms of needs, wants, values. So I would say understanding people and the categorization of people and reacting to this is a key for future architects. And I try to adopt this in my teaching and in my research. Some of my students are working on issues of belonging in cities, how youth populations have this idea of belonging to public space. Others are working on quality of urban life in sub-Saharan African cities. Others are working on post-conflict issues and how people react and build and interact in crisis situations and in contested environments. So all, all of these aspects are really important for the future, and we try to address them as much as we can. I imagine they've been, these students have been thinking about these issues before the pandemic. Has the pandemic affected the outlook of your students or maybe some of their interests in what they're going to be studying going forward? 
I, I have some students actually started to uh, to look at the idea or the notion of the street. What does it mean to inhabit the street in the future, post-pandemic? How the sidewalk will operate? How engagement with the shop fronts? How high streets will be impacted? Many of them are starting to look at some of these issues, also about public spaces and the idea of passive engagement versus active engagement. We always promote a balance between the two. But now, after the pandemic, probably active engagement, again, will take a backseat and then the focus will be on passive engagement. People will go to places and public spaces within cities to watch rather than engage because they will avoid engaging with strangers. So all these aspects, my current students doing master thesis uh, uh, over the summer are studying some of these aspects. Future-wise, there is no doubt that, uh, as I was saying, the idea of health will be an important design determinant, although it wasn't in the past. Nature will be an important design determinant, regardless of the type of nature we discuss whether we're designing in the desert or in the forest, uh, at the end, engagement with nature will be an important parameter on design and how architects will react to it. So all of these issues will likely shape the new content of uh, architectural education and the future of architectural education, in addition to that idea of transdisciplinarity. The current condition is encouraging people to work together. Uh, and that's an important aspect. What was not seen in the past as one would see it now. So you're clearly a researcher who wants to have a real impact in the world. How do you see the work you're doing in your publications having a real world impact? Well, that's a very, very important question. And in terms of actual impact, you know, in, in humanities and social sciences and architecture can be seen more as part of humanities and social sciences. The impact takes long to be visible, but most of our research is the outcome of it is in the form of guidance, whether design guidance or policy guidance to authorities, to uh, public agencies, to even NGOs and how they intervene with cities. So we are always talking about policy impact or impact on policy in terms of our outcomes. In terms of developing new knowledge, it's also an important impact at the level of academic knowledge and the type of basically leading the way in certain areas of research, like quality of urban life, for example. It's, a, it's an important area that emerged in the 60s and died in the 70s and 80s, and then it's emerging again now. There are areas that we try to address, and I myself, in terms of my research and publications, continue to spread the word about these areas so that uh, one can maximize the impact. Some of our research have been of, or outcomes have been of benefit to planning authorities in some countries in the Middle East, or even architectural practices and architectural offices also on utilizing some of the ideas that we generate through our research. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. I had a really, uh, it was a very insightful conversation. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. 
If you're interested in learning more about Professor Salama's research and editorial work, you can find a link to the journal Open House International in the show notes, as well as a link to the International Journal of Architectural Research, which includes a call for papers for the special issue Architecture, Urbanism, and Health in a Post-Pandemic Virtual World. Next week, I'll be speaking with Bob Doherty and Madeline Power of the University of York about how COVID-19 has exposed inequalities in the UK food system. Join us then, and thank you for listening.